0: Hello and welcome to the Mission Inspire Podcast, a production of the National Medal of Honor Museum Foundation. My name is Mo Barrett, a leadership speaker and retired Air Force colonel. The next guest in our Courage Conversation series is not new to the Mission Inspire Podcast. Lieutenant Colonel Will Swenson joined us last year to talk about the National Medal of Honor monument that's being built in D.C. with the bill's co-sponsor, Representative Blake Moore. We are lucky enough to have Lieutenant Colonel Swenson back on the podcast to share a bit more about how he earned the Medal of Honor in Afghanistan in 2009. Mr. Swenson, welcome to the podcast. Now, we interviewed you on episode nine of Mission Inspire, but you were with uh, Representative Moore. We were focused really on the National Capital Region Medal of Honor Monument, right? That's what we were focused on then. But now we want to focus on you. We want to learn more about you because you're. You're one of the younger ones, you're not one of the older ones, you're right there teetering the line of the um, the Living Medal of Honor recipients age-wise. So we wanna know, know more about Lieutenant Colonel Will Swenson. So start at the beginning. No, I'm not the beginning. I was very born. Beginning. Yeah, there you go.
1: <laughs> Which book was that, that was, uh, Oliver Twist? Anyway. <laughs> yeah, that's. I appreciate that I'm, I get to be one of the younger recipients. That makes me very happy to know that I'm still in that, that tier. Um, where would we like to start with this conversation?
0: Well, tell us about what got you into the military in the first place, how about we go do that?
1: So my trajectory into the US military is a little bit different than most people. I, uh, I I came from a family of academics, I came from Seattle, Washington, I didn't really realize that my university had an ROTC. I was always very confused when I saw people running around the campus and camouflage and repelling off buildings, that was the ROTC. Well, I did not know that at the time. if they were camouflage
0: and you saw them, I would argue that the camouflage wasn't
1: working. The woodland camis don't blend in with the marble campus. It's funny how that works. And, 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 and many years later, I also came to find out that the ROTC at my university was named after another one of our recipients, General Pat Brady. Uh, so, um, a small world. But for me, when I came into the military, my trajectory was this. I had been focused squarely on getting into the national policy and national security space, but looking more at the State Department. I was... Uh, Involved uh, heavily with um, uh, the Balkans, I was uh, watching as Yugoslavia disintegrated, uh, and I had been focusing my language efforts in that direction. I figured that the end of history was upon us, and I would find myself rapidly being a uh, part of the tail end of history, the end of history, before the world got very boring and conflict no longer existed. We all sang "Kumbaya," so that's what I thought I was going to do. Uh, and as I was sitting around waiting for the State Department to finally say, sure, we'll hire you, um, the, the U.S. military decided to give a, a quick pitch. And their pitch was pretty straightforward. Um, we'll pay you more. We'll let you blow stuff up, and we'll let you start tomorrow. Do you want to be an officer? And I said, what's well, an officer? And they said, well, we'll make you one. Don't worry about it. Uh, and I said, well, OK. I mean, that's compelling. You said you'd let me blow stuff up. OK. Well, fine. And uh, obviously, 9-11 had happened. Mm-hmm. So that changed a little bit of the narrative there. Um before I knew it, there I was, basic training, no hair, getting yelled at by people, kind of a disembodied experience, but uh, a fun one nevertheless, a, a learning point. And um, yeah, before I knew it, I was an officer in the United States military.
0: Wow. Is there a military history in, of service in your family? No. Just the academics, which based on the way you talk, I can tell that you come from a family of academics. You have
1: So this was already my, uh, my third combat deployment um, uh, to Afghanistan for the second time and working in an advisory mission with the Afghan border police, which is effectively a, a, a light infantry paramilitary organization, um, different than what we think of as Border Patrol. And I had been working with them for the better part of a year at this point, uh, deeply embedded. Uh, I had effectively 750 Afghan soldiers that I was working with, and it was myself and an NCO that are covering down over those 750 Afghan soldiers spread across two or three provinces at any given moment, and four different battalions. Uh, it was a huge lift, but it was an effective one, because we had Afghans that were actually willing to fight on behalf of their country, for the most part. There was only two Americans, so that was a good economy of force, and uh, we were having quite a bit of success, actually, with the mission set. They were they were actually beginning to pick up their responsibilities and, and, and do what they were required to do on behalf of their own country. And the area that we were in, the Kunar province, has already been a catalyst for many of the Medal of Honor actions. The, the, the region produced, I'd say, two-thirds at least of our, our recipients. Um, and a lot of that is to do with terrain. Uh, it's a mountainous, it's forested, and it's right next to Pakistan. So that, that creates a... a A nexus of of reasons why we produced a lot of our uh, Medal of Honor recipients there, Uh, as well as it was culturally just a place where you you knew you were going up against dedicated fighters. Uh, This was an area where people had been committed to defending their neck of the woods for millennia. So on on my specific day of action, um, we were doing um, a, a multifaceted... Uh, mission set uh, where we were trying to get the Afghan government to project force into the remaining holdout valleys of, of the Kunar province that hadn't quite come over to the Afghan government side yet. They weren't getting the message that you know times were changing and it's probably time for you to figure out which side of the fence you're on. And there's only so long that we can go in with a soft touch before this becomes a hard touch. And it was, it was never really a soft touch. The, the specific uh, valley that we had gone into, we'd already been there two weeks prior, and we'd been i'd been there for an entire year so i had been in this valley mul- multiple times and it was the same thing every single time they'd let you in you'd have a nice conversation they'd apologize we we're gonna have to shoot at you on the way out <laughs> it's, just, it's just how it's going to go and we, we apologize and thank you for coming and uh come back again soon and then you have a blowout gun fight and there's you know, stuff going all over the Lather place bombs are dropping <laughs> it's completely surreal and that's afghanistan uh so when i say soft touch i mean that we were not going in with full kinetic force It was an opportunity for them last time to reach out, talk to their Afghan partners in the government and the security forces and determine how they were going to come into the fold. If not, we were going to come in in a different way later on. Uh, One of the, the, the things that we do not have working with Afghan partners like the Afghan National Army, police and Border Patrol, especially the Border Patrol, who are all local hires, is the uh, uh, element of surprise. Hmm. You're you're working in their villages. You're working with their family. You're going into the village that they came from. There is no surprise. The enemy knows you're coming. They know who you're coming with. They know what your mission set is. There is no element of surprise. And surprise is one of the most important elements of military warfighting. So we knew the mission was compromised. And we also were working under the context of um, a tightening and more rigid set of uh, rules of engagement that uh, had come down from higher up that were trying to um, lessen the impact on the civilian populace of the military operations. Things like night raids, things like Mm -hmm. uh, kinetic force. And so we weren't allowed to go into the village until sunup. So... Our approach into the village was under the, the masking of, of, of darkness, but by the time that you know, the, the sun started to rise, we were still in an exposed position without the element of surprise, knowing that we were vulnerable, doing everything we could to mitigate the situation. You know, we had all of our security. We'd gone with with all the tactics and doctrine that we work with. Everything's in place, but ultimately, it's that last thousand meters mm-hmm. that we are now exposed at because we are going in with a soft touch. We're not going in at a raid. We're going in during the daytime, we're going in with pre- with prior notification and again every element of this patrol is compromised. So what changed this day? As we were entering into the village. Generator turns off, um, lights go out, and that was an interesting indicator that, hmm, this is a different, this is different, this is not how they usually act. I've been there for a year, you can go back from the beginning of when we went in in 2001, and we can go through the records of how this village acts when it comes to, uh, you know, military forces and and how they fight, and this was a change. This was the first change that we'd seen in quite some time. And that was an indicator there was also ieds planted on the road to keep us from moving our vehicles up to the village which Mm -hmm. of course when you have that last thousand meters you'd like to have some level of security with you and that that stopped that element of uh, protection so now we had to move dismounted without the uh the security we were hoping for again this mission's compromised we expect these sorts of things to happen we expect that they're going to take away our fighting capacity and put us on a more equal footing but usually they apologize on the way out the door and shoot at us not on the way in that's when the shooting starts. Mm. And immediately it was clear to us that this was not a normal day. This is not somebody who's just doing some harassment fire. This is not somebody who's going to drop a couple of rounds and then disappear because they don't want to get into a deliberate, locked-in fight. These are people who are here to fight. We're starting to notice that they're using elements of uh, suppressive fires with machine guns. We're starting to get hit by uh, indirect artillery. We're getting hit by uh, uh, higher order uh, levels of, of capacity from an enemy that we did not expect. Mm-hmm. Different day, different situation than we'd seen before. Um, We're a professional fighting force in the United States military. And one of the things that had changed that day specifically, again, back to the rules of engagement, was many of the tools that we use as a fighting force were, unbeknownst to us, not going to be permitted. Aviation in Afghanistan. The second that we have overmatch, tactical overmatch by bringing in an aircraft, the fight usually stops. Mm -hmm. The enemy understands very well what happens when US aircraft show up on station. It's time for them to go away. On this day, we didn't get our aviation immediately. But again, this is planned for any mission that's dedicated to uh, an aviation asset for success is probably a mission that's going to fail. So you go back down through your capability sets that you've already planned for. And on this day, we are using artillery as a way for us through that last thousand meters of us trying to get to that village. If anything goes wrong, if they start shooting at us, we're going to drop an obscurant. So something that that basically cuts off Mm -hmm. our visibility from the enemy and vice versa. And we're going to walk back out of that valley because they can't see us. They can't shoot at us. And we're going to come back at a later date and it will not look as soft. And that was the agreement we had with them we weren't given that tool Mm. so once your tools start getting taken away as a professional military fighting force you're having to react on the fly and you're having to find out very rapidly that when you start losing your aviation when you start losing your artillery when you start losing some of those things that make us the fighting force we are you start realizing "Ah, that ak-47 is identical to an m4 that guy in sandals well these combat boots aren't going to make me superman you're fighting on a one-to-one ratio at this point And not only are you in a one-to-one ratio, they outnumber you. Mm -hmm. Because even though we had a significant package to go into that village, just about three-quarters of it are set to outside security. They're set to monitoring the vehicles. They're set to supporting the operation anywhere but the main effort. So we were actually outnumbered as well. And the firefight uh, that started off with a fierce crescendo continued to actually increase and increase and increase to the point where we were effectively pinned down, cut off, unable to maneuver, unable to fight, taking casualties. And uh, within short order, they had produced four American casualties, not that we knew about the four Americans yet, multiple WIAs on the US side, and 12 Afghan casualties on our side for friendlies, for KIAs. So they had created a mass cow situation Uh, We were not being given the tools that we needed. Chaos started to rain on the battlefield. Bad reporting started to go through. Miscommunication. All those things that happened with the fog of war. Mm -hmm. It took us seven hours to extract ourselves off that battlefield, which is an incredible amount of time when you think about the tools and assets that we can bring to bear but could not that day, specifically for reasons that came from much higher up. Mm -hmm. What I saw, though, was an incredible effort of soldiers sailors airmen marines to adapt and overcome mm-hmm. and i even saw our afghan partners doing everything they could to stand up and fight alongside of us and for their own country it was a remarkable thing to see at a great cost but uh our, our aviators who finally came on station we're talking about people flying blackhawk helicopters putting themselves right in the line of fire taking holes in their helicopter doing the best they can for mm-hmm. as long as they can until that bird is <laughs> that thing's not flying again it has to go away uh you're talking about kiowa pilots who uh go winchester they run out of all their munitions on their helicopter and there they are shooting their pea shooter out the door mm-hmm. because they know that we need support on the ground you're seeing a collective effort to make this eff- this 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 conflagration of fighting come to an end um so we rallied uh but obviously the costs and consequences of that were paid in life and blood mm-hmm. um the enemy gets a vote they get to win yep.
0: That's amazing. Well, I mean, it's amazing. We talk about, like, we talk about training and all the equipment we have and the assets and the plans, but what it really comes down to is the human spirit to kind of come together with this adapt and overcome kind of thing, this mentality of, these are the tools we have. These are, we can't even count for the tools that we don't have and then, um, adapting and overcoming and and making sure you have that. But, and that, I think that those lessons that you learn in that moment, are important for the lessons you want to pass on and the lessons you get from the other generations. We talked at the very beginning about how you're kind of one of the younger ones, but you know, there's some that are younger than you. So there's you're at that perfect teeter point where you can grab lessons from older recipients and pass lessons on to the the younger recipients and also taking lessons that from people who aren't recipients of the Medal of Honor. So what kind of lessons like adapt and overcome to me is a really powerful one because we can plan for the tools, we don't always get them. But what kind of lessons did you get from older recipients? And what kind of lessons are you passing on to younger recipients and younger Americans?
1: It's interesting to see how a lot of the uh, the values and a lot of those commitments that we have with, uh, to each other in the military are transferable to effectively anywhere in civilian life as well. Mm-hmm. Um, it, when you have to overcome adversity it's the exact same traits whether you're on a battlefield or whether you're in your everyday life that that allow you to overcome that adversity mm-hmm. those challenges perseverance commitment uh and of course much of everything that we do is as is a, is a team so that ability to work as a team and support one another and and occasionally understand that that, that self-sacrifice is required to mm-hmm. to make things happen uh, altruism is a real need especially as a, a citizen of a, of a nation that we believe in yeah. so all these these things that are brought out in the intensity of combat can be boiled down and stripped down and explained in a way that people understand that you can actually take them and transfer them to your everyday lives you yeah. don't need to get shot at necessarily to understand what altruism is
0: right Well, when you talk about being a team and and all those efforts and all those things so you are on the medal of honor museum foundation board you're one of the five medal of honor recipients on the board so is that keeping you pretty busy
1: you know, it's, it's been an amazing thing to be a part of this uh, project. Uh, it, it started quite some time ago in a different location, many, many years ago, uh, and, and just seeing how our team has come together and really developed a product that uh, will be just uh, just such a wonderful gift to the American people. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, a long time in the making. Uh, but sometimes it takes time to make a quality product. And what we're going to have uh, with this museum, with our leadership institute, and obviously with the memorial uh, monument in DC, it's it's going to be a gift to the American people that they can cherish, they can come to, they can learn the stories. And again, they will see how this can resonate in their life. This is not going to be about us. It's not about the military service necessarily. This is a by, with, through means to allow people to see themselves as an American citizen in these stories. Mm -hmm.
0: I love that. I I think that's really powerful because not everybody can serve in the uniform. And so I think this is an opportunity for people to um, find their own way to serve uh, using the tools and the lessons that you guys are going to project through through the museum. So one question we ask everybody that we talk to on these Courage conversations, because last time you were with us on episode nine, you were with uh, Representative Moore. But we wanna know, is there any other recipient whose story particularly resonates with you that you kind kind of anchor on?
1: the stories of recipients almost seem to come together to me as an, as a composite i always look for those vignettes from their personal experiences from their personal stories and how there's just a narrative arc that links us all together mm-hmm. the medal of honor is 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 a award based on exceptionalism in combat but it's not an achievement award it's something that's aspirational and it's something that is more values based in the sense that You don't compete for this award. You cannot compete for this award. This is not something that you can go out and say consciously, I'm going to get the Medal of Honor today. It doesn't work that way. And unlike other awards, it's an award that's given out to an individual, but with the understanding that that individual is representative of a bunch Mm -hmm. of individuals who did not get recognized. Warfare is an unfair place. uh, And when that whistle blows, and those people go up over the top of the trench line to go attack the enemy, and that battalion gets wiped out, those stories are lost. The criteria for a Medal of Honor is, is 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 fairly rigid, and it requires a lot of uh, sworn statements. And in combat, there are a lot of unseen acts of valor that will never be seen, never be heard. And as a Medal of Honor recipient, it's our stories that tell an individual story, but they are representatives the representative of the stories that were not told, are not told, will not be told, mm-hmm. could not be told. And uh, th- that's why I look at all the stories in their totality. It- it's-, it's people who fought for days in a pitched battle. It's people who did a singular act in the moment with milliseconds to decide what to do. Right. And their core values put them in a position where they did the right thing. And that's what's so interesting about this, is, that it- is in a totality, in a composite, these are about values.
0: I love that. And I think that's what's great about the museum, is we're going to see that composite. You can look at it individually, but walk out of the museum having created your own composite from all the different things that you've seen. So that's, that's a great way to put that. I like that, so. Awesome, I, I know you are a busy man um, on the board, uh, still serving. Um, doing all the things and using very erudite words. See, that's an academic thing, so you see it. Thank you. (laughs) No, but thank you for your time, Will, and um, for all that you're doing for the recipients. And again, like you said, for all the people who had acts of valor that weren't witnessed or haven't been able to be told to, to represent that. And I, so thank you for wearing the medal for them and for everybody in the future. So thank you for your service and your sacrifice. If you want to learn more about the National Medal of Honor Museum, you can go to the computer and type in mohmuseum.org. That's mohmuseum.org. There you can get the latest updates, and you can find out about how you can help its mission to inspire America. We will see you next time on the Mission Inspired Podcast.